Do you like to sweep things under the carpet? Do you like to sweep things under the carpet? Do you know what I mean? Um, That sin in your life, you're convicted. I, I simmered in anger. It doesn't matter though, no no one saw it. Sweep it under the carpet. I've had a bad day, I'm upset with someone. They've got what I want. I'm full of sorrow, jealousy, self-pity, poor me. God's not been fair with me. But it's just me on my own. It doesn't really matter. Sweep it under the carpet. Forget about it. Let's, Let's forget about it. Do you ever sweep things under the carpet? Maybe you do that with your own sin. Uh, Maybe you do that with others' sin to you. Your friend used that sharp tongue on you again. It doesn't matter, you say. Let's just sweep it under the carpet. You were overlooked at work again. A friend let you down again. A neighbour took advantage again. It's no big deal, really. It happens all the time. Let's not make a fuss. Let's sweep it under the carpet, hide it away, forget about it, and move on. We're in the book of 1 Kings again this morning. It's a book we've been in for some time, and uh, we're looking at these last two chapters uh, this week and next week. It's a book that tells the details of the spiritual decline of a nation, and, and as such... Well, it, it can be hard listening. It's, it's full of warning. It's full of warning and, and encouragement as well. And today we're going to see that, that some, a warning that something should not be swept under the carpet. We're going to see how we're tempted to sweep Ahab's sin under the carpet. We're going to see that when Ahab commits an egregious crime, we're tempted to let him off the hook and sweep that under the carpet too. But we're also going to see that God won't. That God is not happy for everything to be swept under the carpet. And so this passage then today is going to teach us what we should tolerate. It's going to teach us about what we should tolerate in our hearts. And it's going to encourage us by hearing what God tolerates and what he does not tolerate. The scene is set for us in a place called Jezreel. That's where we are, isn't it? In verse 1, Jezreel, the location of the king's house in the country. Oh, nice. We're out in the country, you think, as we begin. But there's going to be a bit of a spat. And in the end, King Ahab is going to go off in a mood into his quarters. Ahab in a mood in his quarters. So let me say right off the bat, we're going to be tempted to sweep things under the carpet. After all, Ahab, he's only in his, in his room. I mean, he's in a mood, but he's in his room, you know, like the angry teenager. It's probably better that they're there, if we're honest. Well, let's see if that approach is right for us this morning. First thing to notice, Ahab ends up in his quarters in a mood, and we want to sweep it under the carpet. Is that right? Let's have a look. First point, Ahab in his quarters. Look with me at verse 1 and 2. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and and I'll give you a better vineyard for it. And if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. Here's the king and his neighbour. 
And they're having a seemingly innocent discussion about land, kind of thing that goes on all the time. We get estate agents to help us with it nowadays. But that's all that's going on, isn't it? A sale. It's all rather normal, all rather ordinary. No issues here, we think. Except that this is a king and his subject. The kings in God's kingdom were supposed to rule in wisdom. They were supposed to bring blessing to their people under the rule of God. In other words, kings were the kind of people who should not be heard saying, give me. We shouldn't be hearing kings saying, give me. We should be expecting to hear kings say, let me. Let me serve you and bless you as I rule in wisdom. See, here's Ahab, and he shouldn't be saying, give me. He should be saying, let me, but he's not, is he? You see, the Lord had given King Ahab all he needed. He'd given Naboth what he needed. Contentment was what was required, not greed. Why is King Ahab going after more? Seems like envy, seems like coveting, as the Bible puts it, doesn't it? But actually, it's even worse than that. Because notice how Naboth replies. This isn't an issue merely about real estate. Look at verse 3. Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth here is a godly man, and he points out something King Ahab had missed. The promised land was given by God. God gave every tribe and every family some land and inheritance so that none would be left out. And what God had given should not be taken away or sold. Sure, if you fell on hard times, you could sell your land for a bit, almost lease your land, but every seven years in the year of Jubilee, it would return to the family because they were the ones to whom God had given the land. You see, this is what God had rescued the people for, for a forever inheritance, not something that could be taken from you. And so it's like King Ahab here is wanting to undo all of the Exodus rescue. He's wanting to undo the conquest of the promised land. He doesn't want this to be the Lord's. He wants this to be his. For him. And there's a hint of more here than that, even that. What did Ahab want the vineyard for? Did you notice what he wanted the vineyard for? He wants it for a vegetable garden. Now, hear me on this. Do you know there's only one other place in the whole of the Bible where vegetable gardens are mentioned? Deuteronomy, look it up later. Deuteronomy 11, verse 10. Deuteronomy 11, verse 10. Vegetable gardens are a thing associated with Egypt. So here it's like King Ahab wants to get rid of the Lord. He wants to get rid of the Lord's faithful people. He doesn't want the vineyard of God. He wants the vegetable gardens of Egypt. He wants no God, no Lord, so that he can have his idolatry. Ahab wants what he wants. He wants what Naboth has got. So that he can go after his dreams and his idols. That's pretty terrible, isn't it? But then he's flummoxed, of course, because... Naboth said, you, you can't have it. It's my father's inheritance. So here's Ahab. He's greedy. He's covetousness. He wants what Naboth's got. He's selfish. And now he's full of self-pity. It's not fair. Naboth should give me his vineyard. I offered him a good deal. 
And so here is our temptation at this point to sweep it under the carpet. He's gone to his room, Ahab in his quarters. Let's leave him there. I mean, we all know, don't we, that sometimes we want what we want. You ever had that experience? I want what someone else has got, and I I want it for my ends. It doesn't matter what you tell me. I still feel that I ought to have it. Isn't it a, a, a trouble in our age, that sense of entitlement, that I am owed certain things? And when we feel like our needs aren't met, we fall into self-pity. God, it's not fair. You haven't given me what I want. That's Ahab here, isn't it? And so as we read of Ahab, we're tempted. Let's, let's sweep it under the carpet. Because I can be greedy, I can be envious. And I spend a lot of time feeling sorry for myself. Let's call these little matters. And let's forget about it. You know, I get upset because that person's got the nice car I wanted. I'm sad because they had the trip and I didn't get invited. I got angry because they have the appearance and the get-up that I want. See, we so often think these are no big deal. This is just me in my quarters being a bit upset. Sweep it under the carpet. But these problems are bigger than that, aren't they? (laughs) See, Ahab's problem here isn't a problem just about himself, is it? Our envy problems are actually God problems. When we complain that God hasn't given us what we feel we deserve, our attitude to God has gone sour. So it's not just that I'm sour with the people and the world. The truth is we are sour with God. When we get like Ahab, we're saying, God, you haven't been fair with me. I deserve better. And that turns me, doesn't it, against him. And it turns me against others. Inevitably so, doesn't it? So so what will I do? I'll refuse patience to another person because they've had it better. You ever notice yourself do that? I, I have. I'll take advantage of another person and their wealth because, well, they should pay. Falling, eh? I'll be sour with God because he hasn't given me life's sweetness and I deserve it. Friends, this stuff can't be swept under the carpet, can it, really? So let me ask you today, think on this. How are you handling the temptation to see the world as one terrible place set against you? I'll say that again. How are you handling the temptation to see the world as just one terrible place set against you? How are you fighting the temptation to see God as if somehow he's unfair? I think we need to help each other with this. Sometimes we can't see how bad it is. Sometimes we'll need to move towards one another in this, which is going to be tricky, because if I'm full of envy and self-pity, people aren't going to want to move towards me, are they? (laughs) I'm probably not going to want to move towards you if you're full of self-pity. But we need to, don't we? We need to hear the scriptures. We need to know that we need to stop sharpening our knives and our stories of how it's not fair, and playing the judge and justifying others, because it just gets worse from there, doesn't it? You see, the Bible describes that we are to love one another. (laughs) And to love one another is where we sacrifice self for others. But Ahab in his greed here, us in our envy, what do we do? We don't sacrifice self for others. We're more willing to sacrifice others for self. Self. 
And that is what Ahab is plotting in his quarters, in his mood. That is where our hearts get to. Does it grieve you this morning when we are tempted to sweep this under the carpet? It's not the end of the matter here. Things don't just finish (laughs) in the mood Ahab in his quarters. Um, It turns out Jezebel is waiting for her dinner and it gets cold. And so unsurprisingly, Jezebel's a bit upset. Where is he? It's dinner time. Why are you in a mood, Ahab, she asks in verse 5. And Ahab uh, recounts the story, leaving out the bit about uh, why Naboth refused to sell the land. Uh, Leaves that bit out. And Jezebel can tolerate Ahab's self-pity little more than we can. I think Ahab knew that. I think Ahab went in his room to a mood because Jezebel would come after him and sort it out for him. His mood here is a plea for Jezebel to act. And what does she do? Oh, grow up, be a man, she says to Ahab. Are you king or not? Verse 7. I'll show you how to do it. Ahab knows how his wife will respond. The lady who murdered the prophets of Israel, he has called and she has come. He has beckoned her to act and now she will. It's a bit of a reminder actually, isn't it, that what happens in our hearts are never isolated, are they? The root, one way or another, always has its fruit. Friends, by all means this morning, linger in bitterness. Churn over your plans and ambitions that have been frustrated. Allow covetousness to run wild in your heart. But don't think, don't think that it won't ever come out because it will. And it does here with Ahab, with dreadful consequences. Because look here, while Ahab is in his quarters and we attempted to sweep it under the carpet, what happens? Thing number two this morning, point number two, Naboth ends up dead outside the city. Number two, Naboth ends up dead outside the city, verses eight. To 16. And again here, I think we are tempted to sweep things under the carpet. Jezebel takes action into her own hands. And uh, the details are described to us from verse 8 onwards. She writes some letters uh, with the king's letterhead. Uh, notice, by the way, Ahab's not complaining about her being in his study. <laughs> and writing using his letters, he's not complaining. Um, And she sends these letters. She commands the local government and uh, business leaders and so on, the men of influence. She says, come to a fast, come to table. It's like she's calling for a national day of penitence because a sin has been committed. So come on, influencers, come and sit at this table, including Naboth. And she orders that two bribable liars, worthless men, be found to sit by Naboth at the table. Why? Because law said that any claim can be established by the word of two witnesses. If you had one witness and they said a lie, well, if you've got a second, they can say, no, that's not true. In those days, a claim could be established by the verdict of of two witnesses. But these are not two neutral witnesses. They're going to bring charges that bring the death penalty. Naboth will be accused of cursing king and gods and then taken outside the city to be stoned to death. The plan is so neat and tidy. It's legal. And it overturns everything because if Naboth dies cursed for for cursing God, he can lose his inheritance. It's so neat and tidy. But of course, it does require that everyone plays their part. The letters have got to be delivered. The leaders have got to agree with them. The bribes have got to be paid. The witnesses have got to do what they've told. They're going to have to stay. 
at any point, the kibosh could be put on this plan. But no one does. And look at verse 11 to 14. Jezebel's plan is carried out to the letter as if she's God. And it is so cruel and so heartless and so neatly sewn up. A scheme of corruption, it's like the perfect crime. But in many ways, it's just the usual crime, isn't it? In the end, Naboth is dead outside the city. The powerful get what they want. Just like they always do. And everyone goes along with it. No one in the scheme does anything. They all turn a blind eye. And so, do you see, you could be so tempted to just sweep it under the carpet because, well, let's be real about it. This always happens, doesn't it? You can't stop the powerful. You can't do it. Look, no one does anything here. We, no, no. In the end, Jezebel sends word to the king. Naboth has been stoned. He's dead. And she says, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, verse 15, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Verse 16, and as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. He has got what he wanted, hasn't he? His mood provoked action and he got it, didn't he? Now let me say again, how do you respond to that? This is wicked, isn't it? It is a terrible injustice. But it's just like what so often happens in our world. A godly man slandered, thrown out of the city. We could say it's no big deal. It happens all the time. What are we going to do here? How are we going to respond? Well, at bare minimum, I think we've got to see the reality of this. It's so very real and vivid for us, isn't it? I think we are supposed to look at this passage and and be real... What happened to Naboth seems extreme, but it is every day, and therefore I need to be prepared for when this happens in life. We will face injustice, won't we? We will face injustice as Christians. We will face injustice just as ordinary citizens in the world who hurt each other. I think we need to up our ante in terms of being prepared for that. If this is what happens in a world where ambition is left unchecked, well, I'd better be ready. And I think that also makes me go, and also I better sort out my own heart as well. (laughs) Because I saw myself in Ahab and this is where it goes. I better keep myself in check. My dreams and my ambitions, where are they going to go? I think we also need to recognize the dreadful pain of this passage. Did you feel how uncomfortable this is? I think it is supposed to feel uncomfortable. I think we're supposed to stand here at this point and say, why isn't anyone doing anything? Why? Why is no one standing up for him? You know, that is how it could feel for us in this world. That no one stands up for us. And that there's nothing you could do. And that can lead to despair. I think we need to see the reality of that here. If you're you're a visitor here this morning, if you're looking in on the Christian faith, if you're just considering things, I hope you see in verse 16 that this is the way the story ends without God. (laughs) Verse 16 is, is the end of the story if there is no God. It is just injustice. It is just that deep feeling of pain in the pit of your stomach. Which I think reminds us why we need a passage like this so badly. 
Our world is hurting and we need to hear the good news of a God who is just. That's medicine for us in a world like this, isn't it? We need this passage very badly. We need to know that there is a Lord who rules all and that he is just and that he won't let this be swept under the carpet. Ahab is not going to get away with it. Injustice and persecution of the weak will not go on forever. The Lord is patient, but he will not tolerate continually. Ahab went to his quarters. We were tempted to sweep it under the carpet. Naboth ends up dead outside the city. It's what always happens. We're tempted to sweep it under the carpet. But guess what? God won't. God won't. And he sends Elijah. Last thing to see in this passage, who's in the vineyard? Elijah is. The Lord's prophet is in the vineyard. Elijah in the vineyard, verse 17 to 29. As Jezebel is saying to Ahab, arise and go to the vineyard, God is speaking at the same time. And God says to Elijah, arise and go to the vineyard. So you can imagine the scene. Here is Ahab and he's got his vineyard. He's got that plot of land that he had his eyes on. The blood of Naboth on the ground is is barely dry. And you can imagine him walking around his new bit of land, taking it all in. Oh, I'll do this, I'll do that. And he's probably waiting for his head gardener to arrive. Oh, there's someone coming. Who is it? It's not his gardener, is it? It is Elijah. Do you see, Ahab is not given a single moment to enjoy what he has stolen and murdered for. Verse 20, Ahab said, have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. I I think this is a wonderful twist in 1 Kings. You might remember that Elijah has been the one who's been running and hiding most of the story until now. (laughs) Now it's as if Ahab is hiding and Elijah is in control. The Lord is in control. And there's announcements. It's pretty hard to hear, isn't it? Uh, The Lord said to Elijah uh, that that Ahab's blood is to be spilt in exactly the same place where Naboth's blood was spilt. And also a special announcement is announced. A special, sorry, judgment is announced. Uh, The big kings face serious judgment in this book. So just like Jeroboam and Barasha were so evil and their families so evil that they had to be put to an end, well, the same is going to happen to Ahab's line. It must come to an end. And Jezebel, for her part, must face judgment too. She won't even receive a proper burial. If you read through one kings and two kings, if there are dogs at the end of your story, it turns out you're pretty wicked. Just That's a little, little tip for you. The book of one kings and two kings. Here we are then at the end of the story. Elijah is in the vineyards and all is exposed. All is out in the open. And... And Ahab is condemned by the Lord. He thought he could sweep it under the carpet. I mean, Naboth was dead outside the city. It wasn't like anyone was particularly going to notice. He went to his quarters in sadness, hidden away. The plot was conceived and carried out. Neat and tidy. But the Lord would not have it so. The Lord would not let this be forgotten. He would put it right. Here's some good news. Here's some encouragement for us today. Those who abuse power do not escape God's eye. Those who abuse power do not escape God's eye. And that's good news, isn't it? Because so often we feel like they do, don't we? 
They get away with it again. And all we ever do is just make excuses and and let it go. For some of us today, we realize and we feel that we, we, pro- we may have felt at the beginning of this message <laughs> that sin of envy and think, that, that's mine. And, and the, my big response this morning has got to be, I've got to see that I'm envious in my heart and I've got to stop sweeping that under the carpet. Some of us are going to be there this morning. Others of us are going to feel like, not so much that we're Ahab, as it were, but that, that we've been victims of an Ahab. So hear it today. It won't carry on indefinitely. The Lord brings justice. See, it turns out this passage isn't a, a passage so much about Naboth and his vineyard, but about the Lord and his justice. Now, what ought that do for you and me today? Well, if we know that there is a Lord God Almighty who rules all and will make everything right, well, then we won't despair when justice is slow in coming. We'll be able to have a new patience and a new perseverance. Now, I might say, Ollie, that sounds like you're telling me to sweep things under the carpet again. No, it's not. It's leaving justice to the one who can and will perfectly put things right. There'll be times when we want to call out abuse and we'll need to. There'll be times when we'll feel like we need to and we can't. When it's beyond us. When the powers that be do nothing. Well, when that happens, we don't lose heart. Because though we can't act, it's only a matter of time before God does. Now, do you want that to fill you with confidence or what? I know I do. Let me say here, if you're not a Christian this morning, don't you want that confidence? After hearing this today, do you think you can actually carry on in life without it? I don't think it's possible to carry on life without it. And let me say, if you're a believer today, are you drawing on the confidence that that brings? We live in a world of hurt and abuse where neighbors have their vineyards taken. But God is a God of justice. Are you remembering that? Now, we wondered at the beginning, was Ahab, now, was he really that bad in a mood in his quarters? Can't we just sweep this all under the carpet? Well, we've seen, haven't we, the subtlety of his sin. We've seen the cruelty of his crime, but we've also seen the righteous justice of God. What would Ahab do at the end? There's a final little note, isn't it? You might have thought we were going to miss it. (laughs) Verse 25 and verse 27. Hmm. Verse 27 records that Ahab put on sackcloth and ashes when he heard this devastating judgment. Interesting, isn't it, that this account began with sadness and it kind of ends with sadness as well. But what kind of sadness is it at the end? Is it a godly sadness? Or is it a worldly sadness? I think it's a worldly sadness at the end here from Ahab. I think it's not so much repentance, but remorse. Oh, how Ahab wishes he could have done things differently. He starts to regret his actions. He wishes it could be swept under the carpet and forgotten about. And for that, to a point, that's good. God actually likes what he sees. I wonder if you saw the enthusiasm at the end, verse 28. The Lord, like an excited person, comes to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, verse 29, Have you seen it? Have you seen it? 
Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I'll not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I'll bring the disaster upon his house. The Lord is absolutely thrilled at this remorse. Ahab is actually in mourning, and it's quite a thing coming from this evil king. He's actually grieved of heart, and the Lord is pleased about that. That Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked. So you feel like you want this to be a happy ending, but it's not. There's a stinge of sadness here, isn't there? In a strange way, we've been sort of sympathetic with Ahab because we've seen how much he is like us. Ahab's remorseful at the end, and it's kind of good, but it's also lacking, isn't it? Because he's only remorseful because he hasn't gotten away with it. It's only remorse now because he faces judgment. He'll lose what he loves. He'll lose the vineyard. He'll lose his vegetable garden. He isn't sorry about losing God, is he? He's remorseful, but he's not fully repentant. He doesn't throw himself on the mercy of God because he still doesn't really long to be restored to God. He's just sad he isn't going to get what he wants. There's a sad taste in the end here, which makes us think as we're convicted of the ways in which we are full of greed and ambition and envy. When I'm convicted, am I sad because it feels like the Lord is telling me I can't have those things? Am I sad because of that? Or am I sad because I realize I've grieved God and actually I long for him most of all? What kind of remorse, what kind of repentance is there really in your heart? That would be a good question to ask right now. Because in a world where everyone is sweeping things under the carpet, God isn't. He isn't. As we close... Let's think for a minute. What about in the meantime? What about in the meantime? I mean, if we're subjected to injustice in this world, if we have to walk Naboth's path, how on earth are we going to cope if there's only future consolation? Oh, God is going to do justice, but only down the line. How am I going to cope? Well, the answer I think here is because we don't just have future consolation, but we have present comfort too because of Jesus. You see, Jesus, our saviour, walked Naboth's path. Jesus is the one, the Bible says, who has a vineyard. He plans to care for and keep his people. But the rulers of his day wouldn't have it. They wanted the vineyard. Matthew 26 tells us what they did. They brought witness after witness until they found two bribable, worthless men. Two false witnesses who accused Jesus of cursing the temple and that he spoke blasphemy. Those were, of course, utter lies, just like the ones about Naboth were. The witness, of course, of two was enough, the charge enough, to be dragged outside the city, except this time not to be stoned, but to nailed to a cross of wood. That is Jesus. If you have trusted him, that is your saviour. He is your saviour. He is the one who knows what it's like to be pursued by the wicked. He is innocent and yet slandered. He is innocent and yet murdered. So we know this path that we are on, we don't walk alone, do we? And if God could turn the great evil that occurred to Jesus to good, or he could turn the great evil and injustice, the great difficulties that we face to good, that our experience will not be wasted. God in his good purposes will bring it to good. 
because he did for Jesus, even as we await final justice. Do you sweep things under the carpet? Your sin. Do you sweep the sin of others under the carpet? Well, let me say, don't tolerate it yourself. And don't give up hope. When you're on the receiving end either, don't give up hope. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Loving Father, some of us are convicted in our hearts of what we're like. We're so full of sorrow, of entitlement. We're so so, so full of self-pity. Everything we interpret through dark glasses. Everyone is always doing wrong to me, and we feel so bitter. Father, thank you for convicting us this day. Help us in the church family to bring this to light. Father, some of us are experiencing injustice. Some of us will experience injustice. Might we draw huge resources from this passage? Help us learn how to draw on these resources together, we ask. For Jesus' sake. Amen.